Hi, I'm Rick Tittle, and this is the Rick Tittle Podcast on the 8Side Network. Join me as I get busy with the biggest names in sports and entertainment. All season long, we have uh, checked in with the Super 16 uh, pollsters, and uh, it's great to get uh, their take on uh, who's good and who's bad and who's ugly. By the way, it's all part of the National Football Foundation, and you can join as a champion for the game. Your membership comes with a vote in the College Football Hall of Fame elections, a champion for the game T-shirt, coffee mugs, and more. Just go to footballfoundation.org to find out more information there. Once again, footballfoundation.org to get uh, all that you need. And uh, joining us on the line right now, we're quite happy to have him. One last time, taking a look at the poll, it is Super 16 voter Brett Ciancia. He is with Pick 6 Previews. First of all, Brett, how how much do you want to go Italian and just say Ciancia? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's actually the official pronunciation, so nice job there. Thank uh, you. To see that. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to break it down here. It's been a heck of a season, uh, a lot of chaos, a lot of upsets. I think in, in September it set a record for most unranked of a ranked upset, so, uh, and that pattern has continued all the way through. All right, well, since he's in at four officially and you have him in at uh, four as well, is it with, um, I don't know, Is it? do you feel sheepish when you type that name in there? Do you feel like you're being forced to do it? Or you have a great conviction, think that they're the fourth best team in the country? Well, if you, if you check my poll throughout the season, I've been pretty low on Cincinnati comparatively to the rest of the voter pool. A lot of people had them at number two for the last month. Um, I looked at their strength of schedule. I realized that part of this is out of their control. Uh, but when you go through a season playing 11 non-AQ teams, compared to the guys, you know, the SEC teams going 11 Power 5 games, and it's just apples to oranges. Now, with all that said, uh, some breaks went their way, a couple multi-loss conference champs at the top, um, and other conference runners-up, like Ohio State, took two losses. So uh, the pathway was there. And then the final statement really was uh, that they beat number 5 Notre Dame. So if there was any other team to, to fill that last spot, it might have been Notre Dame, but since he went into South Bend and beat him by double digits. So it's hard to argue, and I think in this year, they earned it. Yeah, speaking of Notre Dame, almost uh, I like the transparency. Almost all your fellow uh, voters have them at five. One guy has them at six. You have them at eight. You have Baylor, Ohio State, and OK State above them. Is that kind of the penalty of not playing a championship game, or you just think those other three teams head-to-head are better? Uh, Well, it's all three things. I think, first off, you look at Notre Dame's schedule, and again, these things are set years in advance, and it's not totally their fault, but uh, when the dust has settled, they beat zero ranked teams uh, in the final poll. So that goes a long way. They had that double-digit loss to Cincy that we talked about. Um, And then when you look at the other contenders there, I have Baylor higher than Notre Dame. I have Ohio State higher than Notre Dame. Uh, They went out and they won big national games at one time or another throughout the season. Uh, A tougher schedule both of them played. And in Baylor's case, they had that 13th extra game um, with the conference title in the Big 12, a very competitive league this year. Um, and they were able to beat uh, several ranked teams. And I think it was three ranked teams uh, when you factor in that BYU win for Baylor. So uh, total resume-wise, I liked Baylor and Ohio State both out of the Notre Dame. One of the things I like about your poll is that it's 16 teams, so everybody's good. When you go to 25, there are some mediocre teams in there. So at 16... I'm sure, I don't know if you lost sleep, but you're like, who makes my final poll, who doesn't? And there's Wake. They made it. Almost nobody else gave Wake Forest love, I guess, after seeing what Pitt did to them. 
They certainly started off great. They had a very memorable season. Their coach will probably get a better job. But uh, most people in this poll forgot about Wake. Why are you giving Wake Forest some love? Yeah, so um, you're right, though, with the 16 count, it, it is a different kind of exercise. Uh, you really have to narrow your scope down and really narrow your focus. Um, I know some voters, uh, you know, they kind of do the ladder approach where uh, when Team X wins, they move them up a spot, and uh, when one team loses, they get thrown all the way down to the bottom. I try and reevaluate each week, week to week, uh, because these resumes shift around. Um, you know, in the opening week, Alabama beat Miami. That was a ranked win. Uh, that's not so much a ranked one anymore. So I like to reevaluate Saturday to Saturday. You know, I'm up till 2 a.m. watching the Pac-12 finish up. Um, I have four screens going for 14 hours a day <laughs> every Saturday. So I love it. Um, but specifically Wake Forest, yeah, I don't want to penalize them for playing that bonus game because, you know, why would teams that were sitting at home uh, last Saturday be able to jump over Wake Forest? Uh, you know, tough game versus Pitt. It was two great offenses going at it. A couple turnovers went uh, against Wake Forest, and Pitt pulled away. But, you know, when you look at Wake Forest this season, I think it was special, another great offensive season, um, and they they should belong in the top 16. Speaking with Brett Ciancia, the human fly, different screens all over the place. Uh, he's with Pick 6 Previews, Cut More Questions, Super 16 poll. Um, when I think about a team that nearly jumped Wake for you, like you have no love for Iowa or maybe a little UTSA, or who was almost your 16th team if it wouldn't be Wake? Yeah, it really was Iowa. You hit it right there, and um, you know it was. It came down to who of those conference title losers would get that final spot at 16 uh, between Wake and Iowa, and just uh, you know the way that Iowa really got blown off the field. And that wasn't really the Iowa that we'd seen all year. I have great respect for Coach Ferentz and, uh, and Phil Parker, their defense, and the way they really built that program up. I run a metric called player development, where you compare the recruiting rankings to their actual on-field performance. Uh, wins and NFL draft picks, Iowa took over the number one spot this cycle. So it's a testament to what they do with maybe some underheralded recruits, got them all the way to Indianapolis. So excellent season. Uh, we saw the defense all year, multiple All-American candidates, uh, great defense, great punter. You know, they always win the field position game, but it was just too little, too, too late against Michigan. I mean, overpowered there and a blowout loss certainly hurts. So um, in, a, in a neck and neck with Wake Forest, they gave it to Wake. You know, when you think about as you said, how much hand-wringing you do, who you're going to place, and I'm sure part of you is like, eh, no one's looking. Is it a little bit satisfying that a guy like me is actually looking to see where you put these teams? <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. And, <laughs> um, you know, I, I try and engage uh, the, the Twitter following with that. Each Sunday morning I tweet out what my ballot looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, it, it's impossible to please everybody. You get fan bases upset all the time, but um, I don't really mind. I kind of go with an original thought, an original ranking. I don't really look at what the AP does or what the coaches poll does uh, or what the fellow you know, NFF voters are doing. So, I, like I said, I reevaluate each week. Uh, it ebbs and flows week to week. And, um, yeah, I, I like getting the discussion started. Almost everybody has Sparty top 10. Didn't make it for you. Michigan State 12. And, in fact, you even have Pitt above them. I like Ole Miss at 10. Ole Miss, to me, is a top-10 team as well. But why is Michigan State 12? Yeah, so in the same sense, I say that I kind of ebb and flow week to week. I had Michigan State really high. I had them above Michigan um, back when that was a debate about a month ago and the committee put Michigan above Michigan State despite the head-to-head win. Um, So I was a Sparty defender for a while. Now the the blowout loss to Ohio State, that was one of the worst uh, top-10 matchups 
uh, you know, uh, blowouts ever. If you look at it, it was Ohio State, Nebraska one time, and then this one was the second biggest Big Ten blowout, top ten. So uh, that was just an embarrassing performance there. Um, and then, yeah, they do have that second loss to Purdue. Uh, now, I don't want to sell them short. It was an excellent season, a great season by Mel Tucker. Kenneth Walker, a Heisman candidate. We'll see how that shakes out. Certainly a Doak Walker, an All-American candidate. Um, his five touchdowns against Michigan was one of the best moments of the year. So I uh, don't want to sell them short. But, yeah, and on the last Saturday, Pitt surging forward with a, you know, a two-loss conference champ. That was enough to pass a two-loss division runner-up or actually division third-place team, Michigan State. Let's talk, if we could, about uh, New Year's Eve. And the Cotton Bowl will begin with Alabama versus Cincinnati. And as much as I heard people punch holes in Alabama before the SEC championship, they can't do this, they can't do that, and they go out there and they wax Georgia. Is there any way, I mean, of course there's a way because it's sports, but do you see Cincinnati having any chance in this game? Uh, well, if we had talked a week ago, I'd have said sure because, uh, you know, like you just mentioned, Alabama had a tough November. Their last three SEC games were all by a score. Uh, LSU lost by six. They had three chances, three possessions to go up and score. They couldn't mm-hmm. do it. Uh, Auburn pinned them at the one-yard line with a, a nice lead there late in a miracle drive by Bryce Young. Uh, and then Arkansas had them close, too. That was a seven-point game. So they looked human. They looked beatable. Um, and now I think we all learned our lesson given Nick Saban seven points uh, in the Vegas line there um, because he came out against the, the best defense we'd seen in 20 years, Georgia, and really they, they blew him up. So um, so what I'm getting at here is, is Cincinnati's built in the same mold as Georgia. They're very physical. It's defense first. A couple All-American candidates on their defense, uh, Gardner at corner. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a similar team to Georgia, and we just saw that that, that, that episode yesterday. So. Uh, we'll see. I, I, I think Alabama favored heavy. Uh, that's how In the Orange Bowl, the other semifinal on December 31st, Michigan plays Georgia. And um, no offense to the SEC, I don't want to see a rematch of what we saw this weekend with Alabama and Georgia. I would, uh, I would like to see one of those SEC teams lose so we wouldn't get the same game. But, you know, at Michigan, both these teams have so much choke in them, I kind of feel like, and as he said, you asked me a week ago, I would have said Bulldogs and that defense, you know, bet your house on it. But maybe there is a little bit of uh, pixie dust going on with the Wolverines. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of leaning at the maize and blue here. What do you think? Yeah, so a couple of things. First, with the SEC rematch topic, uh, not it's not only what the viewers want to see, and I think that nobody wants to see that, but also, I think of the scenario where if, if Georgia were to beat Alabama, uh, then at the series there's 1-1. But why would the second one in, in January matter more than the December one? It's like, when, when's game three? You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. what really would you settle there? It would be really bizarre to have that happen. So uh, we'll see what happens here in the semifinal. Yeah, when the number came out, at Georgia favored by a score. I disagreed. Uh, my numbers have it more a two-point game, a Georgia by two, or, or essentially a pick em. So, uh, And then when you look uh, anecdotally at how these teams are trending, Michigan's really hitting their stride. I mean, this is the best they've played in a very long time. Uh, the the, the two-score win over Ohio State, the blowout of Iowa. And, and really, the, the Ohio State game wasn't a fluke, too. They were just lining up and overpowering them in the trenches. Their last five possessions against Ohio State, five touchdowns. Uh, all long drives, all ball control drives. So uh, they're, they're a serious contender. If I had to pick right now, I'd go Michigan, or at least uh, the Michigan plus seven. Uh, my numbers like it. I'd like it, too. 
You know, before the season began, we were just talking about Spencer Rattler for the Heisman, and now he's in a transfer protocol. I mean, so many things have happened. This is the craziest season, uh, and it would be weird to have Alabama win after all this craziness. But for you, just we have about a minute, what, what was your most disappointing team, you think, when it came to the hype? Well, I'd have to say uh, UNC, the Tar Heels. Uh, this is a team that was a consensus pick in the Coastal, and I even took it a step further. I thought they'd win the ACC. I, you know, that was more so I saw a transition year from Clemson. I thought that this was a year to catch Clemson. Uh, that part was true. It's just that I filled it with the wrong team at UNC. And, uh, yeah, they came out flat right from the opening Thursday night against Virginia Tech. Uh, and they, they really just squandered a great opportunity in a, in a down year in the ACC. Uh, that offense was supposed to be incredible. It, it, it was not what, what it was last year. And the defense for all these blue chippers that they had, I know they're young, but they didn't make any progress. So them, Iowa State, Washington, uh, USC, you can go on and on. But, hey, it, it's been a heck of a season. It's been crazy. Crazy stuff. Brett Ciancia from Pick 6 Previews. And remember, with the Super 16 poll, Go to footballfoundation.org, join up, and uh, you'll get a vote in the Hall of Fame. Brett, thanks for your time and your insights, man. Really appreciate it, and uh, enjoy the uh, playoff games. Yeah, same to you. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, I'm Rick Tittle. Get on back, y'all. You're listening to the Rick Tittle Podcast on the 8 Side Network. Stay tuned for more. Girl, you better get in line. Welcome back to the show. Rick Tittle with you coast to coast and around the world on the American Forces Radio Network. It is our pleasure to welcome to the show accomplished actor Chris Levine. He has a new movie called The Handler, which is going to be opening tomorrow from Uncorked Entertainment. Chris, welcome to the show. And um, just real quick, the the pandemic, which we'd like to think we're getting out of now, but for, I don't know, a year, year and a half, uh, we were all challenged one way or another. How was it for you as a working actor you know, did you work? Uh, was it uh, crazy limitations? How how was it for you? Hey, Rick, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, you know, it was it was a tough year for every actor. Um, I kind of had in order to work, uh, I had to kind of go and do some non union stuff and just come on as producer uh, to kind of work around that. That was probably the only way that I was going to work during the pandemic at, at that point. You know. Did you kind of feel like you were doing anabolic life again with the big weight loss and weight gains? Oh, yeah. <laughs> never that extreme, right? Because for anabolic life, I actually did steroids for it. So I never, I, I didn't have to go that extreme this time. But, yeah, I'm always, you know, I was gaining weight during COVID. And then, you know, the handler came, came abound and uh, I was like, oh, shit, now I got to diet again, you know? Yeah, no, I know. Um and I know, and let's talk about the plot a little bit because yeah. uh, you play the uh, character of uh, Riker. You're a vet. You come home, and you're you're struggling, and then you get kind of connected with the wrong people. And uh, take it from there. Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, I think we just we looked at the hardships that a lot of our veterans uh, when coming back from from war. And getting involved in something that uses some of your techniques, some of your skill base set um, would be like get involved with the wrong people for a little extra money. And all I got to do is be a tough guy. That's pretty easy for me and my character. Uh, and then you realize that the, that doesn't, you know, in the end, that's not the right way to do it. It affects your family. And when you try to get out, this is the situation that, uh, that Riker ends up in. So they say when you get in, you can't get out, right? <laughs> That's a good tagline. When you get in, you can't get 
Now, what about training for this? Because as a veteran, not only do you have to be uh, an expert in uh, you know conventional weapons, but also uh, what about hand-to-hand combat? Yeah, exactly. And um, when the director reached out to me, uh, you know, I wasn't doing anything but eating McDonald's, and he was like, <laughs> "Hey, you know, I have this idea. I got this this great location in, in Glendale, California. We can use it. We could destroy it. Uh, let's do like a raid type '80s action film." And I was like, hey, by the way, uh, I've never really thrown a punch before, so we're going to have to work on that. <laughs> and he's like, I got you. I have this great guy. His name is Matter Dems, and uh, he's a Muay Thai fighter. And, you know, we have 30 days to turn you into something that's believable. And so I did. You know, I committed fully, you know, two a days to, to learn to at least look like a fighter and understand fight choreographs and, um, and my cardio, getting my cardio up, getting some abs in there for, you know, the sexiness of it too. Sure. Now this mo- <laughs> this movie, The Handler, written and directed by Michael Matteo Rossi. What is it like when a director is also the writer? Because it's really his baby. Because he can become drunk with power, or it's sometimes a lot easier because you can make changes on the fly. Yeah, you're right. It could go either way very easily. Um, with Mike, though, it's it, he's so open to collaboration. Uh, every movie he makes, he pretty much writes. So. It's not his first rodeo. It's not like his, uh, it doesn't look at like maybe the first one he was probably like, oh, this is my newborn and no one can touch it. But, you know, as a evolving director, he's come to, to terms in the idea that filmmaking is a collaboration. And, uh, you know, it was really open to what we wanted to do with the fight and the backstory and where we wanted to go with the character. And I also have very strong choices. I, I've been doing it almost 10 years now. So right from the beginning, I was like, hey, Mike, I'm not Arnold. I'm not, you know, Stallone and Rambo, you know, and things like that. Like, I'm more of a John McClane type guy. And I was like, if you want to go the route where he's just invincible and, you know, says his one-liners and be done, you know, you probably know a few people that can do that. But with me, right from the beginning, I told him, hey, I'm going to be injured. I'm going to be relatable. And, you know, I want every guy out there to be like, hey, maybe maybe I could, I could be that guy, you know, just at least a little bit. Yeah, no doubt. And I think, too, one of the things that helps you as an actor is just the chameleon in the fact that, you know, you can look completely French or Hispanic or maybe even Middle Eastern or just like a regular white guy. I mean, it just seems like uh, they can uh, a, a director can put you in any of those types of roles, and it's very believable. Yeah, I'm, I'm a mutt for sure. You know, my, uh, my dad's a Russian Jew, and my mom is uh, English, Danish, and Spanish, so it's kind of created this this kind of Mediterranean, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. whatever. Uh, so you're right. I can be relatable to a lot of different, um, a lot of different people. And uh, do you have a big fan base in Denmark now? Uh, <laughs> you know, my, my grandma, uh, all her family there, they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, they, they love me. But um, I'm no Mads Mikkelsen, you know what I mean? That guy, <laughs> he's like the true... The true Dane that gets it all. But, yeah. Um, You're not yeah. Vigo Mortensen. Yeah, I can say that I'm a Danish-American myself. That's why I threw that Are in. you? Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So um, for you at this stage in your career, obviously when you're a young actor, you're going to do what you're told. But at this stage in your career, how much of it is collaborative, whereas you could say, I think uh, I'd be better standing over there, or maybe just I don't think my character would actually say that? It, it depends, right? Like if I have a relationship at least somewhat, um, with the director, then I have no problem being like that. But if I get, if I get like, um, hired for maybe a day or two on like a big budget feature, 
uh, you know, a couple million dollar plus. I usually just stand in line um, mm-hmm. because at that point, you know, my little small part of the story, while I'm a lead in my own outlook on it, uh, I don't think it needs to be taken as serious as like, you know, if I'm running, running and gunning the entire film, you know. So I try to just be cool and easy on set. And if something is truly bothering me, then I, of course I'll say something. But, you know, other than that, I like to just be chill. And unless something really is like, whoa, this isn't going to work, you know. Right. So peel back the curtain for a second, if you would, and tell us um, the most impressive, like, craft services trailer, maybe people just throwing money away at all those creature comforts that the actors and actresses had. Oh, yeah. The best was I was... Um, uh, on American Express commercial, actually, <laughs> and it was in Santa Monica Beach, and the crafty table was literally like they took like the finest stuff from like Whole Foods or Pavilions or something like that. It was like you know special olives and cheeses and all kinds of things. And then if that wasn't enough for breakfast, they brought in like a chef to make custom omelets for us. The trailers had everything we needed, showers and stuff. It was like. I was like, you guys won so much money on this commercial that probably no one will see. It was wild, though. It's funny you mention that because I worked on a Visa commercial in 1990, and the amount of money they splurged on that was insane. In fact, they not me because I was an intern, but they took the whole crew to Hawaii after they filmed it. And after all the work that was put in, and I finally saw the commercial, every scene that they belabored over and, and, and talked to a million actors was maybe one to two seconds in a vignette. <laughs> So what what was your part of that Amex commercial? Yeah, it was um they put me sporadically in the in it like we we went to we're on the beach at like a taco stand and then you know you give them the Amex to pay and then we're in Rodeo and they shut down Rodeo Drive for a minute, you know, as I walk with a couple shopping bags and it was just <laughs> so silly that day. <laughs> but every time it airs is it cha-ching? Uh, not with that. That one was like, I kind of got a shit deal. They, uh, there was no residuals involved. It was like a buyout for a year or two. I can't do any other credit card inf- uh, oh. commercials till then. All this is my business, by the way. That's why I bring it up on national radio. No, I want to make sure everybody checks out <laughs> the handler from uncorked yep. entertainment. It's going to be available tomorrow on Pearl Harbor day, DVD, digital and on demand. And we've been speaking to the man himself, Riker, the handler, Chris Levine. Chris, congratulations on the uh, movie. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hope everyone enjoys it for what it is. All right, good stuff. And, uh, yeah, that Visa commercial, that was such a pain in the backside. And, you know, I'm, like, just getting my career going in San Francisco media, and I'm, you know, I was recommended, so I don't want to let the person down who wrecked me. Speaking of wrecking me. And I remember, just to give you, I can tell you a hundred stories, but just to give one, they said they wanted to, there was going to be a painting in the commercial, and so this woman sent me around to, like, six different artists in San Francisco one day with a Polaroid, take pictures of their paintings. And I went into these houses, and these ladies would be like, oh, come down to the basement, I've got 15 more to show you, and I'm taking all these Polaroids, all these Polaroids, just, you know, maybe a hundred Polaroids of all these pictures and all these artists I had to drive and go see and interview them for their artistic ability. When the commercial aired, it was at Natural Arches in Utah, and they showed someone painting, and it was way in the foreground, and you couldn't even really see it. It could have been just something out of a newspaper. 
that was the amount of time and effort they put in just for that. I mean, it was a mon- it, was, it was it was kind of a good lesson to see the colossal waste of money that sometimes happens in these things. All right, fantastic. We got open lines the rest of the way. Come on back. You're listening to the Rick Tittle Podcast on the 8 Side Network. Stay tuned for more. All right, that's fantastic. Welcome back to the show. Rick Tittle with you, nationally syndicated out of San Francisco and around the world on the American Forces Radio Network. We all know how great the Call of Duty franchise is in the world of video games and uh, one of the great uh, first-person shooters of all time and uh, just got Vanguard, been playing that. It's so much fun, uh, as always. But video games are not just fun. They can also directly help, and uh, especially when it comes to our veterans. And uh, with that note, we welcome the executive director of the Call of Duty Endowment, Dan Goldenberg, uh, to the show. And he's been doing this for a while. And uh, Dan is a retired uh, Navy uh, NFO, a a captain, a veteran uh, as well. Dan, first of all, as the son of a former lieutenant commander, I say don't give up the ship. (laughs) Never, never give up the ship. <laughs> well, let's talk about your involvement. Uh, I know that after the Navy, you became a businessman and very successful, but a lot of veterans don't have that type of success, and this is what the endowment's all about, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. We are laser-focused on placing as many veterans as possible into high-quality jobs. We know right now that um, almost two out of three veterans, 60%, are underemployed. That means they're working beneath their training and experience and jobs that you know, aren't quite helping them fulfill their potential. So we're all about not just getting vets into jobs, but high-quality jobs, ones that pay a living wage and really do, you know, make the most of their experiences and their education. And how do you go about doing that? Because it's one thing to look at the want ads and see, you know, uh, menial, um, you know, minimum wage jobs. How do you go about getting jobs that matter, like you said? Yeah, well, it starts with our process. So, Every service member, when they leave the military, has to go through something called TAP, the Transition Assistance Program. And, you know, what it boils down to oftentimes is 100 Marines, 100 sailors, 100 soldiers in a classroom, death by PowerPoint for three days of employment training, and they're supposed to walk out and be job ready, and they're not. So our model is to find the highest performing nonprofits in the country that provide customized individualized counseling for these veterans to ensure they understand the value of their experience and the potential in the job market, and then to connect the two. Um, So that's what we do. We find and fund the highest performing nonprofits in the country that do this work. We evaluate them every quarter. Um, And through this model, we've placed 90,000 veterans and counting into jobs, and we do it at one-ninth the cost per placement of the federal government. Yeah, how does that work? Because I I understand it costs the government more than $3,000 to do it. How are you guys so uh, effective at getting it done? Yeah, well, actually, believe it or not, the most recent data is that government's cost is now over $5,000, mm. which, is, which is crazy. Um, you know, I think it's all about our evaluation model. Um, we've partnered with Deloitte since uh, 2013, 
uh, to assess nonprofits. Believe it or not, there's more than 60,000 veteran nonprofits in the country. So it's really a needle in the haystack problem. We focus on finding the high-performing nonprofits. And sometimes those are ones you've heard about, but a lot of times they're not. They're ones that have their heads down doing this hard work of, um, you know, providing this individualized counseling to veterans um, to help them, you know, again, suss out their value and, and, you know, position in a way that employers will understand it and value it. And so this model, we call it the seal of distinction, um, has enabled us to find right now the 10 highest performing nonprofits in the U.S. that do this work. And not just how many vets they place or what the cost is, but the quality of the placements. What's the average starting salary? What's the six-month retention rate, the 12-month retention rate? Um, are these full-time or part-time jobs? Those are the key factors to really providing high-quality employment, and that's what our, our organizations do. And they just do it a lot more efficiently than the federal government can. That's the thing, too, is that uh, veterans come home and they try to cycle back, and we know that it's it's very hard on some of them, and we know about the the terrible rates of uh, suicide and such things. And it's one thing to say thank you for your service and to name a park after somebody or build a statue. Um, what about real help like what you're doing? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think we have to take it into context. So believe it or not, more than 3 million veterans have served in theater or served in theater since 9-11. Um, and of that number, less than 2,000 have lost a leg or an arm, you know, have become an amputee. And, and those folks deserve every bit of help and support they can get. But the fact of the matter is all veterans, not 2,000, but all veterans need high-quality jobs. So we're focused on making sure that we we deliver on that. And, you know, the, the amazing thing is I think employers, to a large extent, still don't understand the value uh, that veterans bring to the workplace. Um, a, a classic example of that is, let's take medics, medics and hospital corpsmen. That's the Navy's version of a medic. Mm -hmm. Um, They receive $100,000 of initial training, not to mention advanced training, every one of them. And by the time they're 20, 21, 22 years old, they've had years and years of of field experience. Uh, When they leave the military in more than half the states in the country, they can't ride the back of the ambulance as an EMT. It's kind of shocking. They can't draw blood. Hmm. They can't take your blood pressure. Um, so we're trying to expose government and employers in that particular space. We recently published a study on it, on the value of former medics and hospital corpsmen at a time when our nation desperately needs um, qualified medical workers. You know, we're, we have governors saying, trying to bring retirees out, people who are in vulnerable populations, to, to meet the demand, while we've got this army of medical workers ready to go if states would just get rid of their red tape. Yeah, and listen, we know Call of Duty is an international game, and and I personally know how popular it is in the United Kingdom. And, and your endowment has now reached out to our uh, our allies over there, right? Yeah, so um, we've funded the placement of more than a thousand vets and jobs over there, and, and climbing fast. Uh, we have two great nonprofits we fund over there: RFEA and Walking with the Wounded. They're both incredible nonprofits. And by the way, if anyone's interested, any of the nonprofits we've vetted. Uh, and fund are on our website on, under our partner section, uh, and, and you can learn more about them there. But, yeah, the, the need is very great in the U.K. as well, and we've been fortunate to find two great nonprofits over there that we fund. And, and altogether, we funded uh, more than $53 million against this effort to place more than 90,000 vets. 
Finally, I remember um, before Super Bowl 50 out here in San Francisco, I hosted a, a radio show at the Wounded Warriors uh, football game the day before the Super Bowl, and I sat down with a lot of wounded vets and uh, just absolutely amazing stories. There were guys who had lost all their limbs. They had basically had their faces burned off, and I just sat there in awe, listened to their stories of uh, heroism, just saying this country's worth it. And to me, it's heroic just to get out of a hospital bed and go out into public for for some of these people. And, and and so for you, just as a vet, how in awe sometimes do you sit when you look at the sacrifices that your fellow citizens have made? Oh, you know, it's uh, I, I think the amazing thing when you have these conversations and when, when you thank folks like that for their service, the typical response, and it's from the heart, is it was an honor to serve. Mm-hmm. I know I feel that way, and I know uh, people who've sacrificed a heck of a lot more than I have feel that way as well. Um, it's a privilege to have the chance to serve our country, and I think we get more out of it than we put into it. But it's nice to see the nation rally behind us uh, in times of need. And, you know, I think I think our value proposition to employers is, hey, you've invested in millions of veterans training and experience. Make sure you take advantage of it. Leverage it. Welcome them back into the workplace. They're going to do good for you and your company. That's Dan Goebelberg, Executive Director of the Call of Duty Endowment. Go online and check out the website, as he says, callofdutyendowment.org. Once again, callofdutyendowment.org. Dan, congratulations on all the good work you do. Thank you thank you for coming on, and go Navy. <laughs> Beat Army. Thanks so much. All right. I'm Rick Tittle. We'll take a quick break. Come on back on Sports Byline USA. This has been the Rick Tittle Podcast on the 8Side Network.